Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, our subject today is the book, Our National Forest Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. And the author is here with us. It's a, Listen, it's an important book. Greg M. Peters is the author and uh, thrilled to have him. Greg, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, listen, thrilled to have you and uh, appreciative that you, that you wrote this book. I'm, you know, I'm a big traveler and I'm certainly big into into wildlife and our, our national forest. Uh, give us a little a timeline of when you started the book and when you completed the book. Sure. Um so I started writing the book in 2018, 2019. Um, I had just wrapped up working at the National Forest Foundation, which is a conservation nonprofit that was chartered by Congress um, to work with the Forest Service on uh, community engagement and restoration uh, on our national forest system. So um, I was a communications director there for about five years um, until the end of 2018. And when I left that, um, I started working on the book uh part-time basically and then uh, I completed it in gosh I guess it was December of 2020 um, but in a lot of ways I started writing it um, in, in some in my head at least a long time before that um, I moved uh, after college from um, where I lived in Maine up to Alaska and uh, I ended up living on a on a little old uh, mining claim up on the Chugach National Forest. Actually, it was privately owned, but it was uh, completely enveloped by the Chugach National Forest. And uh, that was kind of where I cut my teeth on learning a bit more about national forests and come and understand just what they are. When you look at the world, at least from a, a layperson's standpoint, and and you uh, you see the awareness that seems to be there, especially with the younger folks and and, you know, even my generation, I'm 54, I think, you know, a lot of our generation got the point that we needed to preserve. And look, you know, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, people understood you needed to preserve these national forests and create these national forests. Is it, a, is it an illusion uh, or are we doing better as far as that goes? Oh, that's a big, complicated question. Um, I think um, we're really fortunate in this country. And uh, actually, today's a great day to sort of remember how fortunate we are and to recognize um, the veterans who've, who've served on our behalf and their families who've sacrificed to, um, to afford us the opportunity to even have public lands to talk about and to have, uh, have set up the opportunity to preserve these lands. So um, I think... Yeah, in a lot of ways, we're doing better than we used to. Absolutely. And and I think in a lot of ways, we have more to do. Um, you know, we've got some pretty major crises coming or, or at least some challenges coming with climate change and worsening wildfires. Um, you know, we've got threatened and endangered species and, and, and that type of thing to deal with. Um, but we at least have a landscape in this country where we can work to mitigate climate change, where we can work to provide wildlife habitat that's healthy and resilient, um, where wildlife can thrive, and where human beings can get out and reconnect with nature and, and themselves and have an opportunity to be in the natural world in a way that allows them to, to find some value and, and, and to grow. Yeah, you know... 
you're right. It is complicated, and uh, and it's uh, you know maybe unfair to put it into uh, into one question. But you mentioned Alaska, and uh, you know I I spent uh, you know a little bit of time in Alaska, but just uh, just Denali, uh, in and around uh, Denali National Park, which is you know a treasure. I mean, it's just absolutely to me, it's just a um, a national treasure, uh, and t- to me, because of the population of Alaska, it, it seems much easier to uh, to control what's going on. And when you get into, you know, my home state is New York, and um, and you know, a lot of the other populated state, California, obviously, there's uh, there's complications. Uh, but is is it? easier to handle the national forest in a place like Alaska than it is in California or, or Texas, let's say? Probably, yes. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's because there are fewer people. Um, you know, California, almost 20% of California is covered by national forests. Um, the Angeles National Forest, which is about an hour outside of L.A., um, you know, there's 15 million people that live within uh, an hour and a half drive of of, La- of the Angeles National Forest, um, wow. which is a staggering amount when you really think about a landscape absorbing um, even a fraction of that in terms of visitation or uh, <clears throat> you know or recreation. So yeah, I think in in some ways, um, national forests are a little easier to manage when they're farther from uh, from populations, um, but in other ways, it it can complicate things actually. Um, and so, the the Forest Service is tasked with a really, uh, I think challenging mission the national forests were set up not like national parks they're they're not there to preserve land in the way that we think of of preservation and of national parks um hunting is allowed fishing is allowed timber harvesting is allowed um mining is allowed grazing is allowed all these different uses are allowed on national forests which i think complicates their management in addition to those sort of consumptive uses um, national forests provide water to 3400 communities around this country and and the forest service estimates 68 million americans almost one-fifth of our population get their water from national forests Um, and that includes la which i just mentioned uh it includes you know denver it includes portland oregon it includes atlanta georgia which folks might not think about. That comes from the Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest for the, for the better part. So the Forest Service, regardless of where the forests are, are located, is tasked with a pretty complicated mission of managing for several kind of co-equal uses. Um, and, and I think that's pretty challenging. And, and I think they're, they're having some challenges in, in our 20, 21st century uh, doing that, basically. Greg Peters is the voice that you're hearing, uh, specifically Greg M. Peters, as it reads on the book. Our National Forest is the name of, of his, uh, his latest stories from America's most important public land. Uh, Frank McKay here with the author of that book and someone who's uh, very interested in, uh, in telling this story. And it's, uh, again, it's important for all of us to know. I think especially now with, uh, with the changing of the climate and everything that goes uh, with that. Frank McKay here with Greg M. Peters. Uh, Greg, the, the idea that, uh, that we can do something about climate change is is probably a new concept uh, and when i say new uh, you know relatively speaking you know in in the world uh, and maybe 
you know, uh, we started talking, or well, the first scientists started talking about climate change in the, you know, in the 1860s or something like that. But I, it, it was doubtful that anybody was paying attention to uh, to what he was saying. You know, that one individual was saying. Now everyone's at least hearing it. Uh, do you do you see this as a winning battle? Do you see uh, us as taking it serious enough? And uh, and the the fact that we could do something about it is is there enough optimism in you and and others that that care about this uh, this subject um, to to really make an effect on things? Well, Frank, I, I guess I would say there, at least for me, um, there kind of has to be some optimism. Uh, otherwise, um, we face a pretty uh, a, a pretty depressing existence, I guess. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not entirely encouraged by what I'm seeing coming out of Copenhagen right now. Um, but at the same time, I think, um, as you as you just noted, I think you know Americans of all stripes, um, and certainly folks from around the world, are starting to really understand what what this poses for our our Earth. Um, and are starting to demand our governments do a little bit better and, and, and are starting to change their own behavior. So those things give me some optimism for sure. Um, and I think when you look at the set of public lands that America has, in particular our national forests, you know, we have huge opportunities to plant trees that store carbon. Um, it, it takes a long time for a tree to grow and to pull that carbon from the atmosphere, but it's a viable uh one viable opportunity to to help mitigate some of the effects of climate change. We have opportunities to preserve wildlife habitat so that wildlife have uh, places where they can move as their habitat changes and, and temperatures shift. Um, we have opportunities to secure clean, affordable water supplies from these landscapes. Um, so I think if we strategize, we are proactive as to the degree that we can be um, and we really come together in a meaningful way I think we have some of the building blocks of, of those opportunities to help turn the tide and, and help mitigate climate change unfortunately there are a lot of powerful people and powerful entities that are working to prevent that um, but I think uh, the American American community and, and the international community is is starting to whittle away at their defenses a little bit. And, and I think we're going to see hopefully some, some faster and more robust progress in that, in that sense in the not too distant future. Greg and I sure hope so. Yeah. You and me both Greg and Peters is the voice that you're hearing. And again, the author of our national forest stories from America's most important public lands is the book. Uh, please get it. Everyone. Frank McKay here with Greg Peters, uh, Greg, we, we all know I mentioned Denali, and of course we know about Yellowstone and uh, you know Niagara Falls and um, Yosemite. We we know about these these famous uh, national uh, forests. Are there any that are on the cusp? Is there anything new that uh, that possibly could be turned into a national forest, or or basically are we working with whatever we have at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I don't know of any large tracts of land, Frank, that, that could be turned into national forests currently. Um, there are always sort of small um, land 
purchases and land swaps that occur within the public land system and particularly national forests. Um, I mentioned that I lived, uh, for example, on an old mining claim uh, up in Alaska that was on the Chugach National Forest. And that's not necessarily an example of what I'm talking about. But at times, those old private inholdings um, will be sold back to the federal government or exchanged for other land so that um, so that national forests can be kind of made whole where, where there are uh, small parcels of private lands that are owned within them. Um, that doesn't happen all the time, but, but it does happen. Um, I think, you know, from, from a national park, national monument perspective, um, there are occasionally private um, philanthropic landowners uh, who might um, decide to donate large chunks of land to the federal government to turn into public lands. And I'm thinking right now of uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument up in Maine, where um, a woman named Roxanne Quimby uh, spent a couple decades purchasing uh, private land and then uh, donated, I think, close to 80,000 acres of that to the federal government. Um, and uh, President Obama uh, established a national monument there back in in the 2010s, I can't remember exactly when it was. Um, so there are a few examples of that, and and that actually goes back even farther. Um, you know, Rockefeller um, donated Acadia um, to the to the national park system uh, again in Maine. Um, you know, Grand Teton and parts of Yellowstone, I think. Uh, well, Grand Teton at least, not Yellowstone necessarily, but Grand Teton was donated by Rockefeller as well, I believe. Um, so there are examples in the past of, of private landowners uh, deciding that their holdings would be better served as public. And um, perhaps that can happen again. I don't know of any uh, current examples of that happening right now. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a wildlife enthusiast. In fact, I go all over the world to, uh, to view wildlife. I don't shoot it. I, I, you know, I, I view it. You know, I just uh, take pictures or, uh, and enjoy it. And I, you know, I've been to 50 countries, uh, all 50 states, six continents, and I, I really try to uh, seek out the wildlife. From that standpoint, how are we doing with, say, the wolves, right? The wolves, I know they were, they were, they were on the cusp uh, of uh, of being endangered uh, at one point, and I I mentioned Denalia. There's so few really in Denalia. Are we are we doing better uh, with the success of the population of wolves? Um, I think so. Yes. I mean, it, it probably depends a little bit on on where you are, um, but yeah, I think overall, yes. Um, there's a, a fairly healthy population actually in Minnesota. Um, on the Superior National Forest and some other public lands up there. Um, there's a pretty robust population here in the Northern Rockies. I live in Missoula, Montana, um, and there are wolves here. Um, you know, there's some controversy around wolves. Uh, the wolves that are here and that are in Yellowstone were, were reintroduced because wolves had basically been uh, extirpated from this area, um, and their population has grown pretty quickly. They, they uh, brought wolves down from Canada, actually, in the 1990s, um, reintroduced them in Yellowstone, um, and they have since spread um, really up and down the northern Rockies. Um, and now even here in Missoula, um, you know, which is a city of 75,000 people, um, we're seeing wolves on the outskirts of town. Um, so I do think wolf recovery is, is happening. Um, it can be uh, uh, scary for some people. It can be detrimental to uh, livestock um, and to the ranching industry, which, which holds a lot of power here in Montana and, and in the West as well. Um, but at the same time, I think um, folks are learning um, how to how to 
coexist with wolves, ranchers in particular, and there are a lot more efforts now, um, you know, that just didn't exist in the early 1900s uh, and mid-1900s when wolves were being extirpated to, to encourage folks and to, and to help pay folks um, to coexist with wolves. Um, there are wolves now moving into California and Oregon um, that are coming from that, from that Rockies and Yellowstone uh, population. And really interestingly, um, in particular in Yellowstone, uh, ecologists and scientists are seeing how uh, there's a cascade of, of biological and environmental effects that are happening because wolves came back on the landscape. So, um, you know, when you think of the rivers in Yellowstone, um, 20, 30 years ago, a lot of those rivers didn't have a lot of vegetation along them because elk and deer um, were eating it all. Now that wolves have come back, the wolves are moving the elk and deer around more regularly. And so those, uh, they call them riparian areas, but those areas along rivers and, and creeks, the vegetation is growing back. And that is cooling the water and that's helping the fish um, and helping beavers and helping other species and, and, and birds that depend on the insects that live in those trees. So when we start to make our ecosystems whole again and have all of the original uh, wildlife that was once there, we start to see some really cool... Uh, uh, benefits from that and, and, and some closing of those loops that, that had been broken over time. Yeah, in interesting. Uh, again, Greg M. Peters is our <laughs> guest. Our National Forest is uh, the name of the book. We have a couple moments left with uh, with Greg Peters, and uh, we talk about, uh, you know, again, uh, very very some, uh, something that's very close to my heart, and I, you know, I know a lot of people uh, are concerned with, um, with with our environment, and and we should be. And this is a uh, this is a great book to get if you have those concerns. Uh, Greg, we we spoke about wolves, and and actually that's uh, you know that's a pretty good report as as far as their success goes. Uh, who are we worried about? I mean, I know in the in the seventies we were we were worried about the California condor, and and I guess we still are in a sense. Uh, but what what are we worried about? Is there a species specifically that comes out and comes to mind that we could see in these national forests that are are struggling or are having a challenging time? That's a great question, Frank. Um, <clears throat> I think, I mean, again, I think climate change is sort of looming over all of this, and, and I think there's some uncertainty in the scientific world and, and uh, the research world about just exactly how um, species might might respond to climate change, and are they going to have the capacity to move? Um, I think, you know, we're talking about wildlife here, but I, I think actually the, the white bark pine tree is a good example of another uh, species that's on the national forests um, for sure. It's a, it's a high elevation tree um, that exists in the northern Rockies and, and other areas. Um, and it is being threatened by climate change. You know, the, the warming trends, the, the reduced snowpack uh, fire, and also it's being threatened by the white pine blister rust, um, which is an introduced disease um, from, from Asia that has really affected the, um, the white bark pine tree. And so, again, sort of in reverse of the wolves coming into Yellowstone story that I just shared, when the white bark pine tree collapses, um, that removes a food source for grizzly bears. Grizzly bears eat the seeds from the white bark pine tree cones. Um, it removes a food source for Clark's nutcracker, which is a unique bird that lives uh, up in these areas. It's named after William Clark um, and from the Lewis and Clark expedition. So, you know, you see um, 
the reverse of these ecological effects when you lose what's called a keystone species like the white bark pine. And fortunately, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, there are really robust and, and really interesting uh, efforts to restore the white bark pine um, back to uh, to the range that it, that it existed in um, so that, you know, again, those species that depend on it um, can thrive as well. Um, and there's a really interesting, uh, back east, <clears throat> a really interesting effort um, led by the, the American Chestnut Foundation that I talk about a little bit in the book to restore the American chestnut tree, um, which was decimated by chestnut blight, um, back to its prominence as an eastern species. And, and that's just an amazing tree that, um, you know, basically starting in the, well, as of the late night or early 1900s was just completely gone, basically. Um, it's functionally extinct. It still lives in the wild, but um, it, it it's susceptible to that blight and it just doesn't do very well. Greg M. Peters, congratulations on the success of your book and the uh, the completion of, uh, again, an important work. And if you can, uh, real quickly, can you give us a website or a social media site where we could follow along with what you do? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you can find me at gregmpeters.com. And Our National Forest is the name of the book, Our National Forest, uh, with the subtext of stories from America's most important public lands. Thrilled to have the author, Greg M. Peters, here with us. And hopefully we can get him back for a part two one of these days and, and really get into it. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down.